This is what Holy Scripture says. A song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Confession time for me. When I was a kid, I was terrified of the basement. Now, basements back in Buffalo, they weren't like the plush, refined basements of southern Ontario that you might be used to. My basement was basically a dungeon. Exposed concrete, it was dirty, it was dank, there were spiders everywhere, they were huge. And it sketched me out, especially the furnace. There was just something about that orange, fiery glow that spooked me out as I, kid, as I was a kid. And it just seemed to light up every time I went down there, which startled me every single time. But you know when I didn't fear the basement? You know when I was not scared of the basement and that furnace? When I went down there with my dad. My dad was so big and so strong that I knew that I would be okay. And even further, I knew that when I was in my dad's presence, I had nothing to worry about. In fact, if my dad was there and if I had him to cling to, that I would have this renewed confidence, this renewed trust. Oh, dad's here? Let me look around. Let me check this basement out. This thing ain't that bad. That furnace isn't so scary. I got this. And as my trust and my confidence grew in my dad, my fears and anxieties of that basement and that furnace diminished because I walked in his presence. This world is like a spiritually dark basement. Think about it. We are surrounded by all sorts of wickedness and evil, sin. And then on top of this, you and I as Christians, we face very real enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And all of these things could be scary. It can be tough. It can cause anxiousness in us. But Christian you and I have a father who's stronger than all of these things, a father who is greater than all of these things, and this father is with you. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to worry because you can place your confidence in him. And so this morning, I want to remind you that no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the struggle, the trial, the sin, the ups and downs, and everything in between, I want to remind you today that you can trust God in the midst of darkness, knowing that darkness itself will not endure. I believe that Psalm 125 answers the question, why should you trust the God of the Bible? And I also believe that it gives us three crystal clear reasons why you and I as Christians can have unwavering confidence in him. 
because he keeps his people secure, because he won't let darkness endure, and because he is just. Now, before we jump into our first point, I want to give you two points of context here. First, I think it's important to remind ourselves that this is a song to be sung. Psalms are songs designed to be sung and prayers that are designed to be prayed. That means that the Psalms are rich with poetry and imagery and musical lyrics and cues. And think about it. What does music and poetry do to your heart? It moves you. And the Psalms are meant to move you, to shape your emotions, not just merely intellectually inform you. They're meant to change your heart, change your emotions, to guide your emotions, to help you get a grip on your feelings. They're actually designed to help you feel differently toward the Lord. And I'd say that if you read the Psalms for mere doctrinal content, then you're missing the point of the Psalms. You're missing how they were meant to be read. I'm praying for you this morning that Psalm 125 would be a song that would move your heart to trust in the Lord. Second point of context I want to give you is this. We're told that the, uh, that the title of Psalm 125 is a psalm of ascents. An ascent is the act of moving or climbing upward. Think about the ascent of a mountain, climbing up a mountain. And the psalm of ascent is a song or a prayer that a Hebrew would recite while he's on his way to worship God in the temple. So in Psalm 125, what you have is the psalmist singing and praying a psalm of trust to prepare his own heart to worship his God in the sanctuary in Jerusalem. So, with these two points of context in mind, let's jump into Psalm 125. First, I want you to see this, that you can trust in the Lord in the midst of darkness because he keeps his people secure. Verses 1 and 2. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. The Young Adults Group had a little camping trip last weekend, so shout out to all the young, adults or young adulters of Grace Fellowship Church. And we talked about this idea of trust. What does it mean to trust? Well, to trust is to have confidence in someone or something. It's to possess a firm belief or an unwavering conviction in the reliability or truth or strength or ability of someone or something. It's to feel secure. If you trust someone or something, it means that you're not concerned about other related things. Like if we trust the Lord, we don't have to worry about what may come. Uh, let's say a friend visited you to a lake, and it just so happened to be a stormy day when you visited this lake, and then this same friend invited you to come out onto their boat dock. Now, as you're looking at this boat dock, it's a rickety old boat dock, and this boat dock is missing all sorts of wood planks. It's not structurally sound, and in, in this chaotic little storm, if you will, the dock is bobbing all over the place. So as you're looking out on this scene, out on this dock, it wouldn't instill much confidence, would it? No. But if that boat dock was stable, secure, strong, and sturdy, you'd have loads of confidence to walk out onto that boat dock, wouldn't you? You'd trust it. You'd actually take those steps out and walk on that dock. And I think by walking out on that dock, you'd actually validate the very fact that you trust this dock. After all, you can't say you trust something without actually acting upon it. 
This is the kind of trust and confidence that this psalm is talking about, the kind of trust that actually leads us to action. Kids, I think there's still some kids in the room. I want to ask you a question. Are you ready? I have a question for you. I didn't hear any response there. Are you ready, kids? Yes, kind of. Okay, hopefully you're ready. What is, the most, what is one of the most stable, immovable, material objects in this world? Let me hear some answers here. What do you think? Just shout it out. Oh, okay, metal, kind of, maybe. That might ruin my little illustration here. <laughs> How about mountains? <laughs> mountains are stable. <laughs> I'm going to help you guys out. Mountains are strong and stable. They endure. They're consistent. Now, I, I, I love CrossFit. Kids, you might not know this, but that's CrossFit is like working out, which means I like to move really heavy things. I know that's kind of weird, but I like to move and lift really heavy things. So let me ask you another question, kids. I guess adults, you guys can jump in here too. If I pushed with all of my might, do you think that I could move a mountain? No. What if I gathered all of your dads in this room and together we pushed against a mountain? Do you think we could move it? No. Good job. Okay, you're tracking. What if we got all the people in this room and all of the people in this world and we pushed against a mountain? Do you think that we could move it? No. Good job. That's right. And why? Because mountains don't move. They're stable. You cannot move a mountain. That's what the psalmist is saying here. That those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They will never be moved. Now, though we have this promise that if we put our trust in God, we, we won't be moved. But the reality is that we as Christians, we, we sometimes falter, don't we? We live in a broken world. We struggle with sin. And so though we are called to trust the Lord we falter. We lose our footing. So what are, the, what are some of the things that cause us to be moved as Christians? I think they're things like anxiety, frustrations, unplanned changes, being sinned against, fear of the unknown. Finances is usually a big one. Maybe for some of you younger folks, it might be, what am I going to do with my life? Who am I going to be? Who am I going to date? Who am I going to marry? might even be something like a war or political unrest. Or maybe it's some kind of persecution in the workplace, or maybe you're being ostracized by the people that you work with. These all, in some sense, are valid anxieties, but you don't have to be moved. You don't have to falter. The psalmist is calling you to trust the Lord, and when you trust the Lord in the face of these things, you will not be moved. Now, Mount Zion was a kind of nickname for Jerusalem. It's a beautiful place. I've actually been here twice, quite blessed to be able to do that. And even though it's really beautiful, it's a super dry, arid, rocky region. It feels like everywhere you go, there's jagged rocks and giant mountains everywhere. And so Mount Zion, I've stood on this mount. It's not necessarily the biggest mountain around, but it's a mountain nonetheless. And as we just clarified with our kids here, mountains don't move. They're not shaken. They're stable and consistent. They endure. So you'll be like this mountain which abides forever. So what does it mean to abide forever? That's the word used here. Well, to abide means to remain or to dwell with or continue to exist, meaning you won't be removed or taken away. You will endure. Another question I think arises, who is the one who remains forever? the one who trusts in Yahweh. 
So we've already covered what it means to trust and to have confidence. Let us consider now who this Yahweh is. Well, Yahweh is the personal and covenantal name for God. This is the God who chose Israel as his beloved people, the God who led Moses and Israel out of Egyptian bondage. This is the God who gave Israel their law and invited Israel into covenant with him. This is the God who declares himself to be in Exodus 33, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And the God of Israel is our God. If you are in Christ, this is our God. We just sang earlier that he is our mighty fortress, our tower, our refuge. He is our ever-present help in a time of need. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere. He is almighty, perfect, good, just, righteous, compassionate, eternal, and gracious. And we sang that This, he, the God of the Bible, is our creator God who held the oceans in his hands. And he also happens to be the same God who felt the nails upon his hands. This is Yahweh. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God who the psalmist calls you to trust in. When we read the Bible together, A million times over, the Bible gives us all these examples of how we can put our trust in God. It demonstrates that God is a trustworthy God. And then I think if you're being honest with yourselves, at least one or two moments in your life, God has demonstrated through experience in your life that he is a God whom you can trust. He is the rock of ages. The passage continues... The second verse demonstrates the same point, but from another perspective. Verse 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So why will those who trust the Lord remain forever? Why will those who trust the Lord remain forever? Because the Lord surrounds his people and keeps them secure with his very own presence. As I mentioned earlier, this is a very rocky region, and Mount Zion is actually surrounded by other even bigger mountains, which I think makes Zion particularly secure because of its natural defensibility. So armies would have a hard time attacking Jerusalem because of the rocky terrain, because of all the mountains around it. It'd be really tough to move an entire army over all of those big mountains. So along with this theme of endurance, mountains also connote this sense of assurance and protection. Just as these large mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. Just as the Lord surrounds the mountains, just as these mountains surround Jerusalem, which solidifies its security, so the Lord surrounds its people, which solidifies your security. God is present with his people. God is present with you. God is there. And his presence should convey to us the sense of strength and confidence for those of us who trust in him. He's protecting you. He's keeping you. And he is preserving you. Just like how I walked down in that deep, dark basement with my dad, I didn't have to be scared. In fact, I can have confidence because my dad was there to keep me secure. You can have confidence that your Father is here to keep you secure. 
I think the same is trustworthy when, or the same is true when we really think and reflect on how trustworthy the God of the Bible really is. Again, he's the covenant-keeping God, the God who brought you into his presence. And Christian, as a reminder, he is in you and you are in him. And from this time forth and forevermore, God will intimately dwell with his people. God will intimately dwell with you. Think about that. As the people of God, you have a promise that you're surrounded by God, that he's with you. I don't think anything instills more confidence than this fact that God surrounds his people. And because he surrounds his people, his presence will keep you secure. Nothing can pluck you out of his hand. In the 5th century, a young Roman citizen named Patrick was captured by Irish pirates when he was 16 years old. They brought him back to Ireland, and after six years of slavery, kept in Ireland away from his family, he was able to escape, and he traveled back to his family. But things didn't settle in before long. He sensed God calling him back to Ireland as a missionary. So here's this young man with the uh, Roman Empire collapsing behind him and an entire island full of wild Irish savages in front of him who just kidnapped him and held him captive for six years. Here's a young man who held this fierce confidence in the Lord that would propel him to go back to Ireland and to share the gospel with the people who persecuted him there. After 30 years of ministry, God would use this Patrick to change the spiritual landscape in Ireland completely. And obviously we know Patrick to be St. Patrick. But what gave him this confidence? What gave him this fierce trust? I want to let him tell you. These are his words. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me. God's might to uphold me. God's wisdom to guide me. God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me, Christ to shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, I arise today through a mighty strength. I believe that this is a man who knew his God and knew the strength of his God. And because he understand and knew the strength of his God, he had a confidence in his God. And so brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you today, this week, Practice trusting the Lord. Practice trusting God. Practice trusting him with your finances. Practice trusting him with your children. Practice trusting him with your future. Trust him in the face of the fear of the unknown. Trust him when you're prone to to hold on to control in moments of anxiousness and worry or doubt or fear. Practice trusting him. What does it mean to trust him in those moments? Well, you come to him and you ask him for help. And if you're lacking trust and confidence, confess, repent, and pray, God, change me, help me, give me the strength to step forward here. I'm reminded of the man who came to Jesus in the Gospels, and he said, Jesus, I believe, 
but help my unbelief. That's a prayer that you can pray. I believe that's a prayer that God would delight to answer. Loved ones, you can trust God in the midst of darkness because he will always keep his people secure. Secondly, you can trust God because he will not let darkness endure. Verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. When you look back on the history of Israel, you're going to see lots of hardship and strife with many physical enemies, both enemies from outside of Israel and enemies from within Israel. And at times, these enemies, the external enemies, would actually invade their land. And at times, these enemies even captured Jerusalem and exiled uh, the remaining Israelites. And then that's not to mention all the wicked rulers from within Israel who from Judah and Israel, oppressed their very own people. So Israel's history is one marked by strife and persecution. But in verse 3, the psalmist encourages Israel with the promise. And the promise is this, that the wicked won't always rule over them. If you look down, you see, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. See, a scepter was this ruling stick of a king, It was symbolic of his rule and his authority. So he's saying, the psalmist is saying, hey, Israel, don't worry. The scepter of the wicked won't always rest on you, meaning don't worry. You won't always be oppressed by wicked rulers. Things may look bleak from time to time, but you won't always be pestered by these wicked military powers like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. These wicked rulers from within your actual borders won't oppress you. They won't always oppress you. They won't always torture you. They won't always mock you in your God. They won't always rule over your land. Wickedness will come to an end. Spurgeon declares, God has set a limit to the woes of his children. Think about it. Though Egypt held Israel captive for 400 years, God eventually broke their bonds and delivered them. Though Israel was exiled into different lands, God would eventually bring them home. Though they were sometimes stripped of their promised land, God promises to give them a hope and a future. And then a history of God's saints, I think, validates this too. The rod didn't rest on Job. Though he was stricken of everything by the devil himself, God eventually restored him. The same is true for Joseph and Daniel And even Christ, who would go to the cross and die, he would conquer the grave and is now at the right hand of the Father. And all of the martyrs of the church, though they faced death and died physically, they were raised and granted eternal life. So here God says, this evil, this wickedness, this oppressive rule will not always endure. And it won't endure because the Lord is concerned about the conduct of of his people. He is concerned about his righteous ones. The text says, wicked oppression will not endure lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. What does this mean? Well, it means that God prevents wickedness from enduring in order to keep his righteous ones from swaying into sin. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good character. Even though, even through evil oppression, the righteous can be influenced in a negative direction. And yet, as the good shepherd, 
God is not willing that any of his sheep be lost or led astray. So he intervenes as he always does. This is the God who intervenes. He steps in and he saves the day. Now you might be thinking, okay, I, I, could, I can concede he did that with Israel, but where is he at now? What is he doing now? How is he intervening now? There's so much wickedness and brokenness around us in the world. I would say yes. Satan, that great deceiver, has for a season been allowed by God to rest his scepter of wickedness upon this world, causing all sorts of havoc and destruction and sin. But I would point you to two realities that demonstrate how God responded and how he will respond. And the first one is this. God responded by sending his very own son to the cross. And there, as we think about the cross, Christ defeated our greatest, advers- our greatest adversaries, Satan and death and the grave itself. And by putting our faith and trust in him, he saves us not only from our own sin, but from an eternity of darkness completely separated from him. Jesus says in the Gospels in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so our sin and the darkness within was atoned for by our Savior. And the second reality is this. The crucified king who went to the cross would one day return and he would come back as the conquering king. Jesus will return one day and upon his return is a dreadful reckoning for his people, for his people, for his righteous ones. He will once and for all wipe away every tear, right every wrong, and bring ultimate comfort, but for his enemies, for those who oppress his righteous ones, for those who have no regard for his name, who reject him, he shall return and bring ultimate justice. He will wipe them away, and his recompense and his justice will be severe. How severe, you might be thinking. Revelation 6 And on that day, the day when Christ returns, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The justice seen on this day of wrath will be so severe that those who have aligned themselves against God will literally be begging for the mountains and the hills and the rocks to fall on them and crush them so that they don't face the wrath of God. And this will be a dreadful day for those who don't know Christ. But for the Christians... For the Christians, for those of us who belong to Jesus, blessed are those who take refuge in him, Psalm chapter 2. For those of us who belong to Christ, we have a promise right here that darkness and evil will not endure because darkness and evil itself was and will be defeated by our conquering king. So though it might feel like for a moment you're surrounded by darkness in this present world. I want to encourage you, saints, take heart, because darkness will not have a lasting foothold. Persevere, 
because God will not let darkness endure. Thirdly and lastly, you can trust God because he is just. Verses 4 and 5. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So verse 4 begins with a prayer. The psalmist prays that God will do good to those who are good and who are upright in heart. So who are those who are good and upright in heart? Well, the context of the psalm actually answers this. In verse 1, those who are good are those who trust God. Verse 2, those who are good are the Lord's people. In verse 3, those who are good are the righteous. In verse 4, those who are good are those who are upright in heart. Now that word upright there, it, it carries this connotation to be straight or to be level or to be right or to be pleasing. So it means to have a heart that is pleasing in the sight of God. Which means that the upright in heart are those who trust God and walk with God in integrity of heart. So how do you get a heart that is pleasing to the Lord? You have a heart that trusts in him. Like the Old Testament Saint Abraham in Romans 4, 3 and 5, Paul says this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I think this is, this is the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament gospel. The very idea that God saves sinners. That God gives them a new heart and reconciles them to himself through him. He justifies them through himself. So the good person here... The good person is not good in of themselves, nor does he somehow earn God's favor by external acts. But his heart is made good by another, through the goodness of another. And he is brought near to the Lord by the very trust that he places in his God. And so this is the person whom God will do good to, to those who are in relationship with him. He's the covenant-keeping God, ever faithful to his people. And I think that this prayer teaches us something. It teaches us to be confident in the Lord and confident in his protection while at the same time fervently asking him for help. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. Place your confidence in God by asking him for blessing. Trust in the Lord by seeking his help with urgency. Trust in God looks like believing prayer. I think that this becomes a wonderful prayer for Christians to pray because God is just. And as the covenant-keeping God, he will do good to his people. But on the other side of that, because God is just, that also means that he will bring judgment to the wicked. He will by no means clear the guilty, Exodus 33 says. And so verse 5 is a warning. For those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. In verse 1, if you caught it, those who trust in the Lord will never be moved. But in verse 5 here, those who are wicked are carried away. They are moved. So we've had this contrast all throughout the psalm of the people who belong to God and those who don't. Those who trust God and those who don't. Those whom God surrounds and those whom God doesn't surround, the wicked and the righteous, the good and the upright in heart, 
and then those who turn aside and are crooked in their ways. And while God protects all those who draw near to him and trust in him, this verse tells us that God will eventually lead away all those who turn away from him and turn aside to their own sinful ways. He will banish them forever. When I was studying this psalm this past week, I was struck at the beauty of the psalm, the simplicity of the psalm. It's a very simple psalm, but it's powerful, and it's powerful because the simple message calls me to trust in this mighty God. But I also realized the severity of the truth in this psalm for those who turn away from God. And so, friend, if that is you, if you are not in Christ, then I want to beg of you to come to him today. Come to him this morning. You need the goodness of another, perfect goodness to bring you into relationship with God. See, apart from Christ's righteous robes, you stand separated from God and condemned in your sin. But the beauty of the gospel is here for you. There's forgiveness for you available today because of what took place at the cross. So I want to call you. Don't turn away or turn aside from God, but turn away and turn aside from your sin. Thrust yourself upon this trustworthy God who has provided redemption for you and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In a moment, we are going to take the Lord's Supper. And this is where Christians remember and reflect upon what Christ has done for us at the cross. We take the juice, which represents uh, the precious blood of Jesus spilled for the purification of our sins. And then we take the, the, the wafer, which represents the body of Jesus sacrificed for us. This is a picture of the gospel that Christ died in my place for my sins. And it's only through this gospel that you may have forgiveness of sins. And it's only through this gospel that you might have access to God. And it's only through this gospel that you will have peace, peace for your heart and peace that brings you into a right, a right standing, right relationship with the Lord. And so then it's only by and through this gospel where you can pray that last line of the psalm. Peace be upon Israel. That is, peace be upon the people of God who belong to him through faith, not works, through faith. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is a psalm of ascents. The Israelite pilgrim is making his way to Jerusalem. He's heading to the temple to meet with his God, to be in his presence, and to worship him. Saints of Grace Fellowship Church and all of those of you who belong to Christ's kingdom, you are a pilgrim too. We are pilgrims. You're making your way through this life to the promised land, which is life with God everlasting for an eternity. And a part of this world, in this world, as a part of your journey as you sojourn, you will sojourn in darkness. But darkness will not endure. The scepter of wickedness will not rest upon you, Christian, because your father is with you in the basement. He's fixing the lights. He's surrounding you with his presence. He's keeping back the darkness. And this is your faithful and strong father whom you can trust forever, always. 
Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful that you have over and over and over again demonstrated that you are a trustworthy and faithful God. So much so that when sin entered the world, you sent your very son to die on the cross for us so that the scepter of wickedness will not always rest upon us, but you deliver us from this sin and brokenness. And God, I pray, I pray that this would be a song, Psalm 125 would be a song of trust that will forever be on our hearts and on our lips, and that we would be a people who joyfully sing of our trustworthy God. We love you and thank you. Help us this week to trust you and to have confidence in you. In Jesus' name, amen.